Welcome to Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On this show, our guest is Jay Scavel, consulting geologist from Scavel Geotechnologies. Hey, Jay, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. So, Jay, uh, I guess it was a few weeks back, um, Justin and I got in a conversation about uh, the Cascadia subduction zone, and we got into peak oil a little bit, and we quickly realized that we didn't know what we were talking about. (laughs) And uh, we were lucky enough that one of our listeners, um, your brother, Neville, actually left a comment saying that he had a brother who was an expert in the field and that he could maybe get this guy on the show for us. And that uh, so that's worked out. You're on today. And we'd like to just, I guess, ask you some questions about the stuff that is, you know, pretty confusing and pretty technically deep. But really, I, it seems like it can be, it's pretty important to, to understand. So, um yeah, we'd just like to maybe maybe start a little bit with uh, your background in, uh, in in what you do exactly. Okay, first let me uh, correct you slightly. Um, uh, most geologists are fairly familiar with with the topics that you were discussing, and I I fall into that category. There are people who are uh, extremely adept at uh, at these uh, subjects, and uh, they generally spend their lives studying one or the other of them, and and don't uh, don't dabble too much in and uh, too wide an area of subject matter. But uh, in my case, I've I've taken an interest in quite a number of areas of geology and studied them all in a in a little bit of uh, of depth. But I don't consider myself to be uh, a world expert on any of them. But I can probably relay facts that will uh, not contradict anything that's uh, currently going on. So let me just say that I've been working in, uh, as a geologist for, for over 30 years now and, uh, as a professional geologist. And, uh, if you include the studying geology, then it's been about 35, 36 years. Uh, most of my, uh, career has been in oil and gas exploration. And I, I, I like to tell people I've worked on Every continent except Antarctica, but uh, maybe Antarctica someday. But uh, the pay's not so good down there. So. Right. <laughs> but uh, so I, I'm I'm pretty familiar with uh, most areas worldwide from a from a resource standpoint, but mostly from an oil and gas standpoint. So a lot of the subject matter that you were discussing, you know, comes into play uh, because uh, if you are a geologist, you have to understand the dynamics of the earth and how um, resources develop. And if you're going to do exploration, you need to know, for example, why and where there might be a resource. And, uh, and that, and that uh, is intimately linked with the, with the dynamic evolution of those areas. And so to understand those areas, we study what's going on currently, present day, and then we um, apply those analogs to ancient examples that we see all over the world. So I guess I, I guess one thing that I should just quickly say, just to back up a little, people may be wondering why we why we're talking to a geologist on texting, which is essentially a tech podcast. Um, but uh, from from a few weeks back, my mother had actually sent me an email about the Cascadia subduction zone and how um, she pointed me to a Wikipedia article showing that there was um, a possibility of an earthquake, like a, a pretty substantial earthquake down the uh, West Coast during the next 50 years. And so I just brought that up on the show. And then that, that's where Neville had pointed out that uh, his brother 
kind of knew about that kind of thing. I think it's a valuable thing for people to understand and, you know, deal realistically with uh, potential risks. Um, you're, um, certainly that Cascadia uh, subduction zone is, is an important one because it doesn't move very often. So it doesn't remind people uh, really uh, about the earthquake dangers. Earthquakes in California are fairly common. So, you know, people get a reminder uh, fairly often. And, and as a result, the earthquake construction codes and and uh, evacuation plans, emergency stuff is, is quite uh, quite mature in California. But in an area like Seattle, for example, um, there's very few people that have earthquakes on their mind. And so, so I mean, just just to kind of clarify, this the, the possibility of this um, Cascadia sub- subduction zone going, and as it says on Wikipedia, it would be a nine plus on the Richter scale in in theory, um, or that there is a chance of it being a nine plus on the Richter scale. Do you do you think that that really is a possibility in the next fifty years? And and would uh, it kind of wreak havoc in somewhere like Seattle? Yeah, I think that's probably uh, um, very likely. The the probably the closest analog you have to to that subduction zone uh, is the Aleutian subduction zone up in Alaska, which had a big earthquake in 1964, which you're probably familiar with. Which it's a relatively sparsely populated area, but the the earth uh, the relative motions of the earth associated with that um, 1964 earthquake were uh, equivalent or uh, maybe even slightly smaller than what you would have in uh, a Cascadia event. The The unique thing about the Cascadia is that the last time it moved, which was in uh, 1700, uh, it, it, it actually ruptured along uh, probably the largest ever documented uh, segment of a fault, which was about a thousand kilometers. Um, so it, it, it was basically rupturing all the way from Vancouver Island all the way down to Northern California. So what exactly is a subduction zone? Okay, a subduction zone is, is just uh, a convergence between two um, plates of the earth. And when I say plates, you think of uh, table plates, but uh, we, we, we refer to these plates as, uh, as relatively stiff on top and relatively compliant on the bottom but they can be uh, anywhere from 10 to to 50 kilometers in thickness so you can imagine uh, uh, a big slab of rock that's uh, on the order of of that thickness uh, moving one under the other and uh, when the slab that moves under the overlying slab uh when it actually makes a sudden jerk or sudden sudden motion, that's when you get one of these huge earthquakes. And the the subducting slab or the subducting plate um, is the Pacific. Is it basically one of the Pacific plates? And uh, it's it's a subduction zone. In other words, the zone under which it's sliding is it runs from Northern California all the way up into Canada. So that is the oceanic plate and as it goes down underneath the overriding plate which is the north american plate it carries a lot of water 
in there. Any any rock that's buried more than a few hundred meters is completely saturated with water. So these there's a lot of fractures and pores and things that are filled with water. And once it gets down fairly deep, then that water starts to become volatile and it contributes to the melting of that plate because it's very hot. And then that's when you get these uh, plumes of molten material that come up and make the uh, the volcanics that you're familiar with in the Northwest, the Mount St. Helens and Olympias and that sort of thing. I can't tell if I should be scared or not. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think it's worth being scared. I think it's probably worth being prepared. Um, if I were to live out there, and uh, I, you know, I would. I would be prepared by by not living in an area that would be subject to a large tsunami, or at least one that I couldn't get out of the way of. So does does Los Angeles qualify as that kind of an area? Um, Los Angeles probably wouldn't be impacted because the tsunami uh, would be a would be generated by a large vertical movement of the crust, probably within the archipelago that uh, surrounds Vancouver Island and, and, and Seattle and Bellingham, that area. So what would happen is it would project outward, westward across the Pacific. So um, this the 1700 earthquake was actually documented to occur on January 26th of 1700. And it was the reason that's known, in fact, it can be trace back almost to the hour that it occurred is because of the tsunamis that arrived in Japan as a result of that. Hmm. And, uh, but, but the tsunami uh, can obviously go both ways as we saw in the Indonesia. It, it, it propagates uh, out away from the earthquake in, towards the open ocean. But more immediately, it, it propagates back towards land. And, and you have a lot of of fairly uh, important um, bathymetric, meaning water depth, and uh, topographic uh, features in the Seattle-Vancouver area that would actually focus these waves in different directions. Uh, a lot of the documentation of that 1700 earthquake is, is based on uh, native tales from Indians of that region that were actually passed down from generation to generation. And so different tribes had different stories, but they've corroborated them in a sort of forensic way, and they've come up with a kind of a general idea of what the conditions were. But there was a, a, a fairly large uh, tsunami wave that came in and, and uh, basically inundated the entire um, coastal area along the, well, from about the middle of Oregon all the way up to um, southern British Columbia. And there's stories of Indians finding canoes in the treetops and sort of that sort of thing, you know, later on. Hmm. Would you say like a nine plus on the Richter scale, sort of a super quake? I mean, what are the largest earthquakes that we've had in sort of modern times that we can, I don't know, have some way of comparing that number to? Um. It's difficult to compare in a perfectly quantitative sense because a lot of the instrumentation didn't exist until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. But nine plus in the nine, nine and a half range is, is, are some of the largest uh, modern recorded earthquakes. Uh, we feel that in the recent past, in other words, uh, in documented by mankind, 
in one way or another. Uh, there's probably been up to magnitude 10. Now, the people don't really understand the magnitude system, but it it's uh, it's a uh, logarithmic system. So basically, a magnitude seven is is ten times more energetic than a magnitude six, and a magnitude eight is ten times more energetic than a magnitude seven, and and so forth on up. So when you're talking about a magnitude ten, and you compare it, for example, to the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989, which I actually experienced out in the Bay Area, uh, a magnitude 10 would be 1,000 times, uh, or I'm sorry, almost 10,000 times more energetic than than the Loma Prieta, and the Loma Prieta caused uh, you know quite a bit of structural damage. So it's it's like an exponential scale then. Sure. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And the idea is that you won't saturate that scale. You can't. You can't ever saturate that scale. Uh, but uh, there's. I think magnitude ten is probably a reasonable upper upper end for uh, a single event. So, so, if one of those happened, would it? I mean, if you had something in the nine nine and a half range, I mean, would that pretty much just wipe out the entire city? I mean, it would be just demolished completely. I think the the biggest problem in in the Northwest would probably be, uh, of course, you'd have huge structural damage. But uh, the the biggest problem in the Northwest would probably be the the tsunami, because um, it the stiffness of the of the crust of the upper crust is is very important to determine just how far that shock wave goes from its origin, and there's pretty good evidence to support that the area in the northwest United States is 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 let's say soft enough that it absorbs a lot of the shock as it propagates in inland so if you're right on top of the of the of the fault uh, you're going to get huge ground shaking and then you're going to get a tsunami but that's going to be fairly near the coast well, it's like a punch. To, it's like a punch to the gut and then a punch to the face. You know, you get the right. crime. Yeah, right. it's a one two. Uh, well, your 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 best bet, uh, and this was shown in the Loma Prieta earthquake, is that you want to be on bedrock because the bedrock will will shake as the wave goes through it, but it won't continue to shake and it won't liquefy. Uh, in the Bay Area, uh, they had a, the most damage in San Francisco was in an area that didn't have much ground shaking, but it was an area that was built out onto fill that had been pushed out into the bay that was filled with water and wasn't well consolidated. So it just sort of sunk and shook and like a bowl of jello. So you, if you're on bedrock, even if you have fairly large shaking, it, it happens quickly and it's over with rapidly. And then the other advantage is that you're way up high and you won't get inundated by a tsunami. Now, how how high do these tsunamis go? I mean, I, I know that obviously it's impossible to predict, but what what is reasonable expectations? Well, um, normally you probably won't see one along the coast greater than about ten meters, thirty feet in the air or so. But uh, because of the variations in the in the rocky coast and the in the inlets and and small bays and sort of thing that occurs along the northwest coast these can be focused and you could have them uh climbing all the way up these slopes you know uh, two or three hundred feet well so that doesn't even sound that bad because when i it seems like when i heard of you you hear about tsunamis people talk about like these 
thousand foot waves, or maybe that's just in the movies or something like that. But it's unless you're right on the coast on a dock or something, or, or right along that, it seems like you're not going to be in too much trouble. Well, we we tend to think of waves as sort of breaking and okay. and, and and going on, but a tsunami uh, is it, it it's not really so much the height that kills you as the volume of water. Okay. And if you look at the at how far inland the tsunami went in the uh, um, the earthquake and tsunami that occurred in was it 2004 2005 I forget uh, I guess it was the the end of 2004 in in Indonesia um, that uh, tsunami went way inland probably 15 kilometers inland and wow. it was because it was because there was so much water behind it. That even though the wave was not particularly high, the volume of water was such that it just continued flowing inland for quite some time. And then, of course, it flows back out again. So there's no running away from it. <laughs> no, right. the, the only way you can get away from it is to be up high. Right. You know? and, then, and then you have the issue of, of um, after you have if, – if you're avoiding the initial um, devastation – uh, you have logistics to get in and out, and if one of these things uh, wipes out all the bridges uh, in and out of an area, even if you're up high, then you you have a a big low area that's filled with uh, extremely unconsolidated, um, muddy, swampy material that you can't you can't cross very easily. A lot of debris and that kind of thing. So you have those issues to consider. Is this a scenario like um, like New Orleans, where they ha- they had been talking for many years about the possibility of a risk? They hadn't up- upgraded the yeah the uh, the levees. Well, the- the, yeah, the levees. Is is this that kind of situation where people should be aware of this? People should be thinking about this. I mean, what, what yeah, do you, think? you know, really, to be honest, there's not much you can do to mitigate it. So, uh, but on an individual basis, you can make decisions about you know where should I be. Uh, you know, if you're making a decision about, oh, I'd really just like to have this um, beachside uh, um, villa, you know, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in central Oregon coast or northern Oregon coast, well, go ahead and get it. But you're going to be like that guy that was uh, in the cabin near Mount St. Helens that just said, okay, I'm not leaving. Right. You know, when everybody said, well, you got to get out, it's going to blow up. And he was buried in the mud. So if you're like 20 miles inland, you're probably going to be okay if, as long as you make yeah, it through the quake. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you would be. But, you know, things like that are, are – you can't, you can't predict when they're going to happen and you can't uh, predict uh, really what the response is going to be or where the worst damage is going to be. So it's, it's not like you can plan in specific terms. You just have to plan for your own – uh, comfort level, so to speak. So if you're, if you're kid, now you have kids, right? Yeah, I have two, two boys. So if, when they grow up and they say, Hey, you know, we're going to move to the coast over there, would you, would it be the kind of thing that you just say, well, it's probably not a great idea. Or would you be pretty adamant about convincing them not to do it? I mean, how, what is your feeling about it? Uh, well, my feeling is, yeah, I probably would talk to them about, you know, picking a, picking a good good place to live mm-hmm. um i wouldn't discourage him completely because uh you just 
I mean, you never know what's going to happen anywhere. I mean, there, 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 are, there are a lot of hazards that are potentially, you know, on the verge of happening. The, the Yellowstone caldera has been fairly regular on its, uh, on its uh, eruptions for the last three cycles. It's about 600,000 years. And, of course, it was about 600,000 years ago that it went the last time. Right. And a caldera explosion is much more devastating than a tsunami or earthquake would be because what happens is you have an area that may be, well, about the size of Yellowstone Park, which is uh, 150 kilometers, uh, you know, in uh, in diameter or in, uh, yeah, in diameter one side to the other, and the entire thing would collapse into the into the crust and what would what would come out would be highly volatile you know 2000 degrees centigrade uh, material that was uh, volatilized into clouds of, of molten rock that would just shoot out across the countryside at 100 150 kilometers per hour and it just uh, incinerates everything and wipes everything well, maybe we should be asking you to tell us what are like the top 10 ways that we can Expect to die within the next. <laughs> well, you know, the, well, the you know what I tell. Out. What I tell people is is that uh, I think all this uh, preoccupation with uh, with global climate change and all that is just a uh, it's a red herring. I mean, it's it's that's such a minor a minor thing and so survivable that uh, really what we should be doing is is um, you know finding. Uh, taking our energies and and finding a way to uh, t- to get off the earth, basically, <laughs> I mean, because if you're, I mean, you you can say, well, it's you know, mankind's just going to become another uh, another extinct fossil, but that's kind of fatalistic, you know. I'd like to say that mankind will explore the universe and so forth, and uh, basically, the Earth's a death trap, you know. For, for man, so... It, you, but it's also, you, you say it's a death trap, but it's also the, the creator of life. Yeah, but we have no idea what, what else is out there or what we could do uh, uh, given, uh, given the opportunity to be creative with technology. You know, we, uh, we, have, we have yet to blunt our pick on technology and we seem to be moving forward at a, a relatively uh, accelerating pace. So... Mankind is really good at solving problems, and even if they're problems of the, of our own making, we do a pretty good job solving them. So, if you look at the space program, which was almost an artificial construct, uh, we 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 benefit in so many ways from from everything that came out of the space program. But we don't we don't have a serious space program anymore, and uh, so we can't expect to gain technologically if we don't uh, if we don't take bold steps and and try to do things that people say is impossible or crazy or whatever you know it's um it's interesting about yeah, your point about you know exploring and and uh, going to other planets i mean i think stephen hawking made a point about that too not too long ago about how important it is that we find other planets because really it's about risk diversification right i mean it's like owning one stock right right, or, right. I mean, and, the earth goes down if we get hit by a solar flare or you know an asteroid sure, or whatever sure. I, I mean you got one you know if we have a if we have a near uh a near neighborhood uh um uh, quasar 
that uh, occurs or a supernova, uh, what's going to happen is it'll send out a a cosmic uh, cloud of of high energy particles that could strip you know all the volatiles off the Earth in about three tenths of a second. So you know we we don't plan for that, but you know the best way would be to be spread out a bit, right? You'd have this diversity. But I, I think what's more interesting than that is if you look at, for example. Uh, how different people are in different places, and ha- f- uh, when the United States, for example, was isolated from Europe uh, by virtue of the difficulty of of transport, uh, we we developed into a unique a unique culture and a unique people. And I, I would see the same thing happening if you sent, for example, people to Mars. Uh, it wouldn't be very long before they would not consider themselves Earthlings. They would consider themselves Martians, yeah. and they would want to have self determination and 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 independence and 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 all the things that that we saw happening on Earth. That's just human nature. And you'd have a, a, a really an interesting uh, uh, history, future history. It's uh, not going to happen in any one generation, but. It's an interesting concept to think about. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people already consider Justin kind of a Martian, right, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, instead of the idea of where you would go to California and find the mother load and all this, it, well, it would, it's, it would advance to a larger scale where you, you would find an entire planet that would have uh, resources uh, unlimited resources uh, that would advance a certain uh, technology and make it, make you capable of uh, of doing incredible incredible things that were beyond the comprehension with limited resources uh, where you found somewhere else like on Earth. Well, come, talking about the resources and limited resources, and just coming back to Earth for a second, um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was about the the whole peak oil scenario. Right. And was just wondering if you may be able to talk us through that. Well, uh, the peak oil, uh, the peak oil scenario that was outlined by a guy named M. King Hubbard, who was a physicist that worked for Shell Oil back in the uh, starting after the Second World War, and and he had a career that went all the way into the 1980s, was a a, a brilliant yet simple uh, sort of analysis that looked at. Uh, the idea of of finding and producing uh, a commodity, and it's a it's a it's a model that works out uh, on a lot of scenarios, including uh, you know even economic scenarios where we're looking at pure economics, banking, or whatever. But the main thing is, it, you you can look at a kind of a bell shaped curve of 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 production uh, for any commodity, and uh, you can. Uh, take the the lead up to the maximum of production. You can figure out where that's going to peak and where it's going to decline. And he was fairly accurate on his uh, predictions. He basically predicted that you would reach peak oil in about 2000. And we we pretty much did, given the limitations that he put into his theory. But one of the limitations was that we would be dealing with what we call primary production or primary resource uh, which is to say that the uh, the oil is uh, fairly conventional. You go and you drill and find a new field, you produce it conventionally. Uh, what he didn't factor in is that there's a lot of oil 
and gas on Earth that is unconventional. And I don't think anybody fully realized how much of that there was until just fairly recently, actually. So when you factor that in, it really stretches that peak out quite a bit because we're mixing uh, the methods of production, but we're not we're not uh, segregating out uh, the the actual commodities. We, it's still oil and it's still gas, so we still look at it that way. What, what is unconventional? What, what, is, what does that mean? Well, um, we used to talk about, when I first started working, we used to talk about having uh, a reservoir rock and then a seal. And the reservoir rock was a nice sandstone or, or a porous limestone, something that had holes in it. And that's where the oil was. And then you had a seal, which was a nice shale, which is made out of clay. It goes over the top of the reservoir or, or something like uh, salt or gypsum, anything that's impermeable. And that would be your, your trap. So you would have the oil. Uh, as I mentioned, all rocks are saturated with water. But when you generate hydrocarbons in the subsurface, they are lighter. They're, they're less dense. So they migrate in the subsurface up to a, the highest place where they can arrive without moving any further and that would be what we call a trap so we had conventional thinking where we had a reservoir with holes in it and then a trap that's uh, impermeable and now what we're finding is that those impermeable layers uh, a great majority of them actually are what we call the source in other words they have all the original hydrocarbon in them and when they get heated up it moves out of them and into the traps or into the uh, more conventional, we, we are finding that we can go to those trap, trapping rocks, which are much more volumetric, and we can apply uh, some technology for how to uh, produce those, and, and they're full of, of resources, and we can actually produce them at economic rates. So we're looking at a huge multiplication factor in terms of the total uh, amount of rock out there that has a commodity in it. It's more expensive to get to, but but the price uh, justifies that now. The when I first heard about peak oil back, I don't know, two thousand four, I think it was. I, I did a lot of reading on it and found it fascinating, but also terrifying, um, because the the gist of the argument was that okay, there's a certain amount of oil, you know, that's available through conventional means that's economical to produce or extract. And when that goes out, there's these other types of oil, like you get the deep sea and there's oil shale or, or I can't remember what all, you know, the tar sands and things like that. But a lot of that stuff, the argument was that it's going to be take, it's so hard to turn that into oil to usable energy sources and there's not really clear how that's going to happen in any reasonable time frame and the stuff under the sea is it takes there's so few drilling rigs and it takes so long to inexpensive to get those up and functioning that we're going to reach a, a global peak and then after that it's going to start going down and the result of that is not just well you know gas prices are going to go up but because so much of our infrastructure and economy is built on top of oil whether it's you know everything that's basic based on plastic is petroleum-based right. and pharmaceuticals and fertilizer and that and that once people understood that our economy or our, our world GDP is based and is highly correlated with the available energy supply that there would be a negative GDP a decline year after year and that the capital markets once they became aware of that then that would just crush the entire 
economic capitalist system because you're not going to invest in things and you realize the GDP is negative and sort of a well, negative I, sum game. Yeah, I think that's. I, I I don't think I don't think that 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 outlook is really justified. I mean, the, the mechanisms you described are are no doubt in play, but what ends up happening uh, is when a commodity decreases in in abundance, the price starts to rise. And what that does is it opens up new frontiers of things that were previously uneconomic. And most of these unconventional resources were probably known by the guys that were drilling through them, but they were like, well, you know, why would we mess with this? It's not – It's when, when oil is $2 a barrel, you, you can't even think about uh, a well that would produce 10 barrels a day or 20 barrels a day. Uh, even if you could make ten thousand of them, because it'd just be so many wells you'd have to drill that it would be uneconomic. But when it when it gets to fifty dollars a barrel, seventy dollars a barrel, wow! Then you can go out and do it, especially given the fact that it's cheaper to drill now. So, uh, what ends up happening for all commodities? I I, know, I don't think anybody really kind of scratched their head and worried about running out of wood when everybody was burning wood for energy, and then and then coal came along, and then oil came along, and Oil just happened to be much more abundant uh, and much more plentiful than than the prior fuels it displaced. So it, it lulled us into a sense of, of cheap energy. But I don't think the cheap energy uh, is probably not as cheap as it as it will had been in the past. But it's still cheaper than just about anything that's an alternative. So. What, what you see is throughout history, you see gradual transitions into the next thing. Um, and uh, the, 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 con- the modern uh, paranoia is to, is to worry about something just falling off a cliff and then, we, and then we're stuck, you know. And so now we have to put a lot of, of uh, external stimulus into developing uh, some replacement when, in fact, the replacement will just show up on your doorstep if you – if you just allow the price to rise uh, to the point where that uh, replacement is is uh, viable, and there's a lot of people out there with replacements, it's just that they're not uh, they can't compete with oil and gas right now. Right, because uh, so I guess in in a sense your argument, which is I guess what you alluded to earlier, which is that the the power of the human mind to solve problems is so great in its capacity, especially on a global level that no matter what our limitations, our constraints are in terms of raw materials, that we'll most likely be able to overcome those obstacles. Uh, and the the economics, the, you know, essentially the free market, the, the way markets work, which is that when things become expensive, it becomes used less, and then people look for other options. So in, in a sense, it's a, you have a fairly optimistic view of of what will happen no matter what the uh, limitation is on any of these natural resources. Yeah, and and the reason I say that is just because, I mean, people just don't willingly curl up in a ball and die. You know, when when things get tough, people really really get uh, creative, and uh, and 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 the most creative people become extremely. It becomes extremely obvious that they're very creative and they're very resourceful. And you know the Thomas Edison's and those kind of people they come out of the woodwork, um, and 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 develop things that nobody ever um, considered. Uh, and it in in the future is probably not going to be a single individual because a lot of these things are fairly complex. But but there are a lot of organizations that 
uh, are very adept at uh, finding new solutions to things. Um, Bell Labs was a was a fantastic concept uh, early in the 20th century. Uh, basically, just uh, the idea was just go find the really the smartest guys you can find and hire them and just tell them to do stuff. And 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 that's you, you have them do that and you know that uh, they're going to come up with some great things. And they did high vacuum and lasers and and uh, you know everything microwave everything you can think of. Um, that, I think that that uh, people people even just connect with each other directly. I mean, the internet in a way is a bit like a neural network, and and um, that the whole social network revolution and people kind of finding each other online in their yeah, interest groups. That's true. Like solving, that, solving the world's problems via Facebook. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, I, I like to point out, I mean, I worked for a big company for, for, for many years and, and I left, you know, probably at a time which was good because it was driving me nuts because they had put into, into place these structures where, you know, everybody got to, a voice. Okay. Well, if you've ever studied statistics uh, are you, have either of you ever studied statistics? Jay Jason has a bit of familiarity with it. Okay, well, have yeah. you ever heard of the central limit theorem? Sure. Okay, the central limit theorem basically says that if you take a population and you and you continue to sample it, uh, you're going to drive the solution towards the median, the the mean case. Okay, for a Gaussian distribution, drive it towards the mean case. So you're going to by the more samples you take, the more guarantee you're going to get mediocre results so the real key to tech technical technological you know excellence is to is to identify early the people that are really exceptional and then put them in charge and i I think like steve steve jobs is a good example of that i mean i don't think anyone really identified him but but when 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 apple was floundering they went back and got him and look at what's happened since it's interesting. It's something we've discussed about programmers, about how a really good programmer, you know, a really, really good programmer is something like a thousand times better than a good programmer. Kind of yeah, thing. absolutely. And, and I think there's this, there's this uh, paralysis now, especially in technology, where, oh, everybody's got to have their say, and you don't have room for people that most people would regard as, as nuts, you know. Uh, you don't have any opportunity for them to grab the the reins and and run with it. Um, so, when when you mention the internet, I mean the internet has no mechanism for qualifying really uh, what's good and what's bad because it's basically a, a democratic, um, you know, the ultimate democratic uh, device. So that's why Facebook is the biggest thing is because. Um, if you take the population as a whole, uh, they're going to gravitate towards something that that uh, that brings in the most people and the most interest. But pe- people have the mechanism. So, if so- let's say someone like you was out there looking for some for a partner, um, you, the mechanism would be that you would have quality control and only work with the people that you felt yeah. were of high enough and, quality. And I do that. I do that. We. Ha- I have a very uh, the organizations I'm working with now are very decentralized, and uh, we we work through networks and and uh, only go for people that we consider to be extremely talented, capable, and uh, and we don't we don't uh, 
very rarely will we take a gamble on somebody we don't know. Right. No, and yeah, the no false positives. Well, unfortunately, Jay, you've kind of short short circuited some of my line of questioning, which was going to like, you know, ramp up the the doom and gloom. <laughs> We're not so optimistic now. I'm like, well, I don't know if you know, this is going to be interesting, but uh, I'll, I'll try to bring up a couple things and just be, I'd be curious what your um, okay thoughts are on it. Okay, so one of the things that I I had uh, read about was the Hirsch report. And I'll just read this little excerpt here that I read. It probably can express it better than I can, paraphrasing it. It says, a U.S. Department of Energy Commission study, Peaking of World Oil Production, Impacts Mitigation, Risk Management, was released in early 2005. Prepared by Science Applications International Corporation, it is known commonly as the Hirsch Report after its primary author, Robert L. Hirsch. Um, for many months, of the report, although available on the website of California High School, remained unacknowledged by the Department of Energy. The executive summary of the report warns that, as peaking is approached, liquid fuel prices and price volatility will increase dramatically and without timely mitigation, the economic, social, and political costs will be um, unprecedented. Viable mitigation options exist on both the supply and demand sides, but to have substantial impact, they must be initiated more than a decade in advance of peaking. Um, so this is like, you know, commissioned by the Department of Energy, you know, they're basically saying this is a big, big problem, and yet we don't do anything about it. I mean, do you think, is it a, just a political reaction, like, you know, that's going to cost too much money, and uh, without any, um, something happening right now that people can understand as a real problem, there's no way the, the money will be allocated to it? I and mean, what's your perspective on that? Well, I think, you know, the big issue here is that a lot of these studies, uh, Although they're very rigorous, um, they they fail to take into account uh, people's uh, just the 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 individual. Uh, in which case, there are billions of individuals on Earth making decisions based on on incremental changes in the commodity. So um, those tend to mitigate uh, catastrophic issues, and that's what I was saying earlier about uh, as you transition from one fuel to another fuel, it's mm-hmm. never falling off a cliff. It's never pandemonium. It's always gradual. And the reason for it is people see an opportunity to move to something else that's uh, more plentiful and, and potentially will be uh, uh, even cheaper than, than their current current choices. So uh, the, the market, if you want to consider it uh, as a market, it's an organic uh, uh, evolution because – uh, things don't happen in the dark. Everybody's kind of got their ear to the ground, and they make decisions based on their local circumstances. So these things tend to tend to evolve rather than rather than uh, become catastrophic. Right. Now um, there are there are issues about you know just who has access, and in in many cases, uh, large governments can can exacerbate the problem because they can make decisions uh, that will um, tend to work towards uh, capturing uh, monopolies on on assets. And I, I think China is clearly moving in that direction. Right. Uh, yeah, they, both from an oil and gas standpoint and, and maybe more importantly from a minerals standpoint. Right. Well, one thing I'd be curious about asking you is um, – so that I don't know this this might line of questioning might come off as a bit cynical, but I'd be curious just from a from an expert's perspective, your thoughts. But you know, there's our our presence in the in say Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, there's it's been often often surmised that the reasons we're there are are less than straightforward and have something to do with the fact that there's just a huge amount of untapped oil 
in uh, in Iraq, and that the uh, I guess it was um, the Energy Task Force, like Cheney's Energy Task Force, which the minutes have never been released, made public, and held top secret. You know, the, it's been speculated that that contained a lot of insight into like why we might be there because there was so much oil there, and that it was going to be used to say throttle the importance of um, OPEC that we could do whatever we want to the price and that we could somehow get access to it. And, and also you've heard it, it's popped up a couple times in the news over that in Afghanistan, there's just huge amount of natural resources, rare earth elements and that kind of stuff. And that, um, you know, this whole idea about terrorism may not be a lot of why we're there, that there are other reasons. And that could be because of the presence of, of, of valuable resources that we could get access to. So just curious from your perspective and, you know, how do you see that? Well, I, you know, I'd have to look for some – I mean, I wouldn't reject it out of hand, but I'd, I'd have to look for some um, practical uh, path forward to make that happen. If, you know, the, the most glaring uh, discrepancy when you consider that as a scenario is that we don't get much oil from the Middle East. So I think what our actions are doing over there is try to stabilize price more than supply. We get we get almost all of our oil from well we get it all almost all from this hemisphere and most of it from Canada and Mexico. So and and that could ramp up at any time if 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 uh if circumstances uh required it. In other words, if there was a global conflict or something, we could ramp up almost our entire need from from Canada Canada and Mexico and also uh, domestically, we have quite a bit of oil being produced domestically. So I think uh, the the primary. Uh, I, I think people are right in that in the sense that we focus on the Middle East uh, because the Middle East is uh, does control so much uh, of that resource. But we do it primarily because we want to control. Uh, we want price stability more than supply. Uh, you know, our supply is going to come domestically or, or or in the near in the near neighborhood um, but in terms of of the mineral the the story that came out about minerals in Afghanistan it kind of uh, flared up and then went away real quick and yeah I think people know how much there is in Afghanistan it's just that we started sending people over there to help quantify it and and that probably hit the press you know when all these geologists showed up there and Everybody wanted to know why they're there, and then they said, well, there's a lot of uh, mineral resource here, so we want to evaluate it f- to see whether it's a viable thing for the Afghan. So it's an, it's an easy cynical thing to say, and it's an easy cynical theory to come up with, but actually the practical application of it isn't quite that easy. Right, and, and be th- there'd be no reason to, to trundle all the way across the world and bring oil back here uh, when you've got it right next door with pipelines supplying it i mean it it just doesn't it, it it doesn't pass the smell test but but there is probably a reason to be over there to stabilize the price but i i will tell you an interesting story i worked on a field in northern iraq in kurdistan uh just a couple of years ago um and for for a swiss company and what was interesting about that is that the, the the field was in the tribal areas in in Kurdistan, and it was probably very all the operations there were very secure because you basically hire the whole tribe to to guard the place and they know everybody who should be there and shouldn't be there, and they're fairly uh, direct uh, to put it politically about you know having the wrong people in, but 
Uh, there was um, – you might have heard about all the conflicts between Kurds and and Turks and, and uh, you know, the Shia, Sunni in, in, in Iraq or in Iran and, and so forth. But what you find is that there was a field there that was discovered in the late 50s and Saddam basically – uh, shut down all economic development in the Kurd, Kurdish areas because of uh, uh, punishment, basically, for Kurds not being loyal to his his cause. So this field sat there for a long time, and then the Swiss company went in and started drilling it up, and several other companies were in there doing the same thing. But what was interesting is the licenses were owned by a Turkish concern, okay? So that basically the Turks were working with the Kurds, the tribal Kurds in that area, and the idea was to produce this field, which they're doing, build a refinery on site, and then pipe the refined products to Iran. So you had three relatively incompatible groups that were all willing to just work together because there was an economic interest involved. (laughs) And so I think a lot of times we poo-poo the economics or the profit and all this stuff, but it really has a pacifying effect. And it tends uh, – old um, tribal hostilities tend to fade into uh, obscurity when everybody's getting paid. Mm, right. And so I think uh, one of the ways to ensure that that region of the world would become much more stable – is to is to uh, make sure that those resources are are um, are exploited and and I, I I tell people that the model that we have in this country, uh, which of course I'm probably most familiar with, but I've worked in all the other countries, uh, leads to the most stability. And the model is that you have private ownership of resources. And what it does is it te- it's a sort of anti-monopolistic uh, effect because everybody who owns a small mineral interest is working in their own self-interest. And so what you end up with is, is a very large uh, assemblage of everybody pulling in different directions. So you end up becoming very efficient at distributing the, the uh, commodities – value to to a number of people to a large number of people it's it's heterogeneous in at the local level because you have some people getting rich and some people not but but you have a lot more people uh at the middle level of wealth than you have in these countries where all the resources are nationalized Mm -hmm. Uh, in the countries where you have resources nationalized then there's a big scramble to become the guy in charge um and that you see this happening worldwide, and it, it tends to uh, both make the process um, more unfair and also much less efficient. So, so, um, so what yeah. do you think about China's? I mean, there, there's been a few stories out recently about how China is going to s- um, stop exporting as much of their rare earth elements. 
um, a lot of them being important for the production of all of these advanced electronics and things that, uh, like iPhones and everything else. And I just read an article in Wired, and it was kind of interesting. They kind of had a list of all these elements and when they were supposed to become um, you know, when, when, they were gonna, when there was going to be so little of them that they were essentially um, no longer available, fully depleted, and a lot of it was pretty far off, you know, 2150 or something, you know, and or 2300, and, uh, but some of them also were a little nearer, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the rare earth elements and why China would be um, already restricting those. Is it purely like a political move? Like we flex our muscles sometimes, we, we do embargoes and, and sanctions on countries because we want them to do something that they're not doing. And China sort of like wants to make itself more of a player in the region and just say, look, you know, hey, we can turn this spigot on and off as much as we like. Or do you think there's something more important about just running out of the stuff? Well, um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of, of all of that in there. Um, it's, it's difficult to read the minds of the Chinese Central Committee because they're not very open. But, but the, uh, the reality is this. Um, th- those commodities are really only produced in China. In other words, they're the only country that's mining these rare earth elements. And uh, uh, almost all other countries on earth have quit mining them uh, for one reason or another, either economics or or environmental concerns, or just uh, uh, like Clinton used to say, we've moved on to a service technology or service uh, society or whatever. Uh, the fact is that uh, over time, the origin and source of all these things is China. Now, when China was a lesser economic power, it was uh, really advantageous for them to uh, to export these things and sell them because they pretty much controlled the market. But and they, they would probably continue to do this except for the fact that their economy has risen to the point where they're consuming all those now. And so it's not so much a decision to withhold them as it is a decision to use them internally. And that has two effects. One is if you're going to build any of these things, you have to build them in China because right. China, China has the materials to make them. And that's going to happen more and more. So China is going to gather more and more of the manufacturing, worldwide manufacturing capability. But aren't they doing that anyway? I mean, isn't most, aren't most factories, haven't they already moved to China for the most part? Yeah, and largely for that reason. Yeah, because yeah. China, uh, China has the, the commodities. But, I mean, they have, they have uh, a lot of other things, too. I mean, uh, probably a lot of people don't realize that China produces most of the, of the concrete on Earth. You know, uh, and 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 now uses most of the concrete on ours. So, there, there. You've probably heard about uh, cement shortages uh, yeah. occurring periodically, and not so much anymore because the building has dropped off. But, but that's because it's got to come from China, and China is using most of it to build their own stuff. Right, Very and I guess China also has the cheap labor, and they also have sort of the lax environmental and labor laws, so that they can produce yeah. things. Manufacturing yeah. is much cheaper. Well, that's that's, abs- that's absolutely true. But I, I mean, having worked in, mostly in third world countries, uh, most places where people don't go because you can't get a tourist visa, you know, most of the places I've worked, um, you find that that environmental concerns and environmentalism is really a, a, a rich person's game. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor people don't care about environmentalism. And so right. in, unless you can, it's uh, the economic situation in most of these countries uh environmentalism will not become 
um, a viable consideration. And China is certainly, um, well, they're on the cusp of, of caring about it because they have, uh, at least their urban centers are populated with, with people that have resources now, uh, economic resources. But because it's a centrally planned economy, they just move their operations to places where, um, you know, where they, where they want them. And there's not a lot of red tape to get approvals and things like that. So, One thing I'd be curious to ask you a little bit about is you, you mentioned that you've been all over the world and working in some of these countries. Where are some of the places you've worked, the most interesting places and some of the things that you've done there? Well, I've worked, uh, in, I've worked in about six or seven countries in the Gulf region in the, in the Middle East. Um, and it's interesting to see the differences in those countries. I, I spent probably the longest period of time working in West Africa, primarily in Angola. And for, for the people who aren't familiar with where Angola is, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's South Africa. And then the next, uh, if you go up the West coast, the next country North is Namibia. And then Angola is the next one North of that. And a lot of people aren't familiar with how large, um, Africa is, but, uh, Namibia has a coastline about the length of, of California, and Angola has a coastline about the length of California. So you can kind of measure up two Californias from from South Africa, and that's Angola. And then that entire region all the way up to Nigeria, which is sort of in the what I call the armpit of, of, West, of the West African coast, that um, is the region where all the uh, oil and gas uh, yeah, you, exploration is. I recently saw something on the web that, and it was it showed how big Africa was, and it showed like the U.S., China, India, Europe, and Russia superimposed on top of Africa, or something like that. It was like it was so much bigger than people realize because of the way we're used to looking at how globes and how maps. Yeah. And I, I find I find our 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 dialogue about Africa to be very provincial because you know a lot of people will ask me well how do you like working in africa <laughs> and that's right. like saying well how do you like working in north america right. right it's very different in different places and uh and i think people tend to homogenize it just because you know everybody's got about the same skin color there so but it it, it, it it's it's really quite a very diverse area a, a diverse continent and and I, I would say that many of the countries in Africa, it's almost like the Wild West. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of areas where you can just disappear and, uh, and do your own thing, sort of. Obviously, you're a private consultant, right? Do you do um, consulting for governments as well as for private co- corporations, or how does that work? I have, but most governments don't have the expertise to to develop their own resources, so they invite uh, companies in to do that, and so I, I end up uh, pretty much working with uh, the individuals in those companies. Uh, there always are uh, government uh, scientists involved, but they really don't uh, generally act in a uh, in a way that is uh, controlling of the technology it's it's usually they're they're there to to learn and to study and to supervise uh sort of from the government standpoint what what gets done is it is it the norm to be um a consultant geologist or or is it the norm for someone like bp to have a team of geologists on board what's the kind of norm 
the way yeah. that that works. Well, most companies like to have their own their own staff, uh, but uh, as the as the population ages, a lot of people leave, and then they're shorthanded, so they'll hire them back uh, as consultants, and that's been the case with me in many in many cases. Well, could you describe to us a little bit about what exactly what type of consulting you do? Um, and sort of how you got started in it. Uh, well, when I I worked for, uh, like I said, I worked for a large company uh, for for a couple of decades, and um, in, in the process of working there, I, I, I got involved in 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 virtually all the technical areas that a geoscientist would get involved in. What, what company did you work for? I worked for Chevron. Okay. And um, so so those include. Uh, elements of, of of drilling, of evaluation of of what you've got uh, downhole uh, production uh, of that, and then geophysics, which is where we uh, where we go out and collect uh, reflection seismology data, where you shoot off a, a source at the surface and you record and build a, a three dimensional picture of what the subsurface looks like. So that's called geophysics. Uh, or reflection seismology, if you want to call it that, and then um, uh, field geology, where you go out and look at what's exposed to the surface and try to use that to extrapolate what's in the subsurface. Um, all these uh, elements come into play when you're uh, trying to uh, make the most of of what little knowledge you have of the subsurface and make an interpretation. You know, ideally, what you want to know is what's down there. What does it look like? In its terms of its geometry, and what's what kind of uh, uh, commodity is in that rock, what so that you can go after it. And uh, a good analogy is, I tell people that you can go to the most heavily developed oil fields in the world, and the actual rock volume that's been sampled by the drill, in other words, rock you could you could look at, is about one one billionth of the total volume. It's one to the minus nine, uh, one times ten to the minus nine uh, fraction of the actual volume of rock involved in the in the field, and so I tell people, you know, it's remarkable we can do anything uh, with that amount of data. You take the New York Times and cut it into a billion pieces, and I give you one of them and, and tell you and ask you what the news is for today. You wouldn't be able to tell me. All right. So so using geological knowledge that you gain elsewhere is is imperative and that's why we study so many wide variety of subjects everything from physics to to biology and and uh, chemistry and everything in between so if we were going to um, just to ask a slightly off-base question but if if we were if earth decided to te- move to mars and terraform mars would, would it be someone like you that we'd be working with to uh, to think about that um, it would it would definitely be a geologist, but they they would probably have their their expertise in. I mean, there's whole, there's a whole discipline now of uh, of extraterrestrial geologists, if you want to call them that. It's incorrect terminology because geo refers to the Earth, but but uh, people who study the chemistry and geology and makeup of of um, of other planets, and those would be the people that would would do it. I think. You know, a lot of people think of terraforming or whatever. That there would be people, a lot of people thinking outside the box as to just 
you know how you would how you would uh, how how a civilization or a, a society would look on those other planets. But a lot of it would be uh, uh, creative thinking of the people that uh, ended up on those planets. So you, you you sound like you're almost like a a fan, like a sci-fi fan of like the guy. What if like uh, Jerry Pornell? Those guys from the seventies oh, who were the, yeah. you know, Jerry Purnell, I think he was a NASA engineer, and he and a lot of his contemporaries wrote a lot about, you know, uh, the human race terraforming nearby planets and things like that. And when you hear Jerry Purnell interviewed every once in a while, now, he's he's kind of frustrated with the pace of uh, or lack of of any kind of pace and moving in that direction. But they spent a lot of time, it sounds like, thinking about really thinking hard about how that might happen and. Uh, sounds like you're kind of a you, you've spent some time thinking about that as well well I, I spent quite a bit of time talking with the the last the last man to walk on the moon who also turned out to be the only geologist to walk on the moon and uh oh, who is that a guy, named, a guy named harrison schmidt uh-huh. uh jack schmidt he goes by jack schmidt but he uh he came back from apollo 17 and uh and uh ran for Senate in New Mexico and won, but he's a geologist. He teaches geology, among other things, at the University of Wisconsin. But he's written a book called Return to the Moon, which is quite an interesting book. You know, it's a little bit, it's not a, it's not a novel or anything like Buzz Aldrin, but it's, what it, what it lays out is it lays out the economic viability of going back to the moon um, on the basis of, of a helium-3 fusion technology and and as far as i've found that's the only uh viable uh let's say energy source fuel source that really fits the the model of what we've seen in the past which is to say something that comes in much more abundant and much cheaper than the prior fuel source and uh he points out that the the key to making that happen is to create a helium-3 fusion reactor. And, of course, fusion reactors are notoriously difficult to make because they're extremely high temperature. So you have to have a magnetic containment vessel and so forth. But the research is actually going on. The advantage that helium-3 has is that when you fuse two helium-3s, you produce nothing but high-energy electrons. Um, So there's no need to capture, uh, to convert the heat generated from a reaction into into steam or whatever and drive turbines you just capture the electrons and you go directly to electricity and the other advantage is that it has there's no there's no radioactive byproducts involved you know i it's it, it's funny you bring that up I, I i think i read an article about that maybe 6 months ago and if i recall that was an area of research that showed a lot of promise back in the 50s or something like that, but it kind of got mothballed because, if, if, if I'm remembering the right technology, because the military wanted the byproducts for nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. So when you have there's, so there's much always, of the, yeah. Yeah, there's there was so much, there was so much like research. That. Yeah, there was so much. There was so much money and research going into it, but so much of it was controlled by via the Pentagon and via, um, you know, these uh, the armed forces and what they what they felt they needed to be competitive with the Russians and these kinds of things. And so right. these these lines of research that did not provide the byproducts they wanted sort of got pushed aside. And but now 
there are definitely, it seems like there are a lot of people, a lot of researchers and scientists who are starting to bring this stuff out of the attic and really reinvigorate it again. Right. Well, you know, Jack Schmidt's main point of his book was, was this, that if you produced a viable helium-3 reactor, uh, then everything else would take care of itself because suddenly helium-3, which is very rare on Earth, but very abundant in the soil of the moon, so in the upper uh, 20 centimeters of, of moon soil, uh, it's very, very abundant. It could eclipse other forms of, of, of electric, electrical generation on Earth, uh, and it could do it um, ch- more cheaply and also with people making a tremendous profit. So there would be the profit motive for, for private individuals to build uh, bases on Mars or on, on, on the moon, which would ship back uh, helium-3. And it has the other advantage of, of it, it's, very, it's a very little amount of it can, can be very energetic. So if you have uh, just a couple of kilograms uh, of helium-3, which you can get from a few kilometer, few square kilometers of the moon, you can, um, if you bring that back to the Earth, which is just a couple of kilograms, is easy to bring back, uh, it will power the equivalent of uh, something like 100,000 megawatt uh, coal-fired power plant for a year. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredibly... It's incredibly viable as an economic uh, model. It just depends on on the development of this technology. So, you know, if you had a case where, for example, if I was president, I'd say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put, we're going to take all this money we currently put into these various uh, research forums um, that aren't yielding anything, and we're going to redirect it to uh, helium-3 fusion. And I bet you within a decade, you'd have a helium-3 fusion reactor. I mean, they that model has been used effectively in the past. Uh, the SR-71 spy plane was an example of that. They just said, okay, let's just throw money at it, and these smart guys will come up with what we need. Mm. And, uh, right. so, and, the, and the space program, for that matter, was, was that. You know, people come out of exactly the woodwork. It was exactly that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's just no, there's no resources uh, available or very little resources available to to move that technology forward right now. Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, I mean, I got to get too political here, but I mean, the amount that we spend on the Department of Defense, it's like we, we spend more than the rest of the world combined on military. And it would seem like, you know, cut that in half, <laughs> spend the rest of that on these other things, like, new, you know, helium through reactors, building bases on the moon and Mars, I mean, you know, projecting things forward as opposed to just sort of, you know, fighting over these things that probably aren't worth fighting over. And but it, it's not like it doesn't apply to the military anyway. I mean, all, uh, all of the stuff that we're talking about is just as applicable to the military as it is to anything else. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would certainly be a, an advantage to the military, I would, I pr- would presume. But I mean, you know, I, I again, I, 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 I wouldn't, I don't want to get too political either, but you know, President Obama is going to leave tomorrow to go to India, and he's going to spend two billion dollars. He's going to spend two hundred million dollars a day. Well, that amount of money right there 
is 10 times what's been spent on helium-3 fusion in the last 10 years. So, right. so I mean, y- you could pick around the edges of the federal budget and, and come up with a tremendous expansion in this. And I asked, I asked Jack Schmidt, I said, well, you know, you were a senator. Um, do you have anybody in your, in, your, in your Rolodex, you know, that you can call in Washington? He says, no. He says, no one will take, take his calls. So many times when you hear stories like this, <laughs> good stuff that can happen and no one, you know, there's just deaf ears everywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, based, Jay, based on, uh, Jay, based on what you were saying earlier about the economic incentive, I mean, it, I guess it gets to a point when things become too expensive, oil or these other types of energy sources become too expensive and we need to look at other things, that that's when those things will become uh, a focal point, maybe. Right. But I mean, just go back in your, in your industry, uh, the PC never would have become anything but a but a parlor toy if if the spreadsheet hadn't been invented. Okay, so the, the spreadsheet made it a business tool. Um, so you have these enabling technologies, and and you know everyone knows there's helium three on on the moon, but it's not any good for anything but you know talking funny when you breathe it. Uh, right now, it's not worth. Uh, worth anything until you have an enabling technology and so you know you have to look for these for these linchpins and uh, and work on those instead of uh, uh, typically what we do to try to encourage somebody just throw a bunch of money at it um, and and that doesn't work I had an interesting uh, dinner in a pizza parlor in Denver uh, about a year ago and they had on the table oh, you know showing that they pre- they actually, uh, you know, make all their pizza and run their pizza parlor with, uh, with alternative energy, with solar energy and wind-generated energy, which, of course, you can't sort out which electron came from where. But the, the uh, utility has a, an earmark where you can say, I want to spend, I want to pay for energy from these sources. And then that energy, that, that money that you pay to the to the utility will go towards those resources, so it essentially pays a an elevated price for those uh, the electricity generated from those sources. Well, what they don't realize that they're doing is they're actually encouraging the use of fossil fuel because they're willing to take more money uh, and pay for a higher priced commodity and thereby taking demand off the lower price commodity and forcing the price even lower. <laughs> right. So so they're actually encouraging the use of of fossil fuels by their policy. But mm. people don't normally think that through. That's an economic uh issue, but it, that's how it works. If you if you don't have uh an economically viable alternative in, in a real sense, uh, you you will never transition to that. So you know what's what's interesting is that, in one sense, you, 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 when the government gets involved and starts trying to, I don't know, imp- imp- help things along, and cre- sometimes it seems like it creates a distortion in the market that just screws things up. But then, in another sense, you say, look at it and go, well. The, the the investment in the ARPANET, which became the Internet, I mean, that, that funding of basic research is what created so much value in the end. So it's, it's kind of an interesting question of, like, what kind of investment from the government is harmful and distortionary and what, time, what kind is sort of um, is, is the right time? 
And the other thing is, if the government doesn't get involved, then you've got no regulation and you end up with things like the housing bubble. Now, okay, well, that's a whole other question about regulation, but we're just talking about investing in things maybe, right? Yeah, investing. I think if you go back and you find the success stories, uh, you're going to find that uh, the investment was made in a way that was an enabling investment rather than a nurturing thing. So, so we, we, we tend to do, I think, a lot of nurturing type projects now, which, which don't do anything except, except build a lot of, of, you know, bureaucracies, I think. And, and What's a nurturing type project as an example? Well, for example, solar and wind. I mean, solar and wind have been around since forever, and they're not going anywhere because you can't generate enough electricity to, to make a dent. Um, and and that's 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 a reality. That we try to camouflage uh, the impact by saying, okay, we're going to make an electric car, and then that will run on solar and wind. But that's not really the case because the majority of the electricity still comes from 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 burning fossil fuels. So you may uh, eliminate local concentrations of of pollution because you put an electric car out there, but you still haven't solved the larger problem. Because most electricity is coming from a coal, a coal right. burning plant. Right. So what I'm saying is that is it is that you know things could should be pitched to the government uh, for, as projects when when you can show there's an enabling technology that will uh, lead to a a uh, a self propelled uh, viable um, advancement. How and, long would um, helium three last for? Oh, it'd be thousands of years. I mean, there's enough on the moon to last for thousands of years. But I, getting back to that, I mean, my, I think my my curiosity and my my enthusiasm for that is is not so much to you know solve an energy problem here on Earth, but to by by going to the moon and and doing that in a practical way where people are living and working up there, you've you've made that first step. And, hmm. and and then going to Mars is it'll seem like nothing, because you've got all the technology you need developed on the moon to do that. It's a great it's a great hypothesis, I have to say. Well, one thing I really like about uh, your uh, your perspective on this stuff is it's very optimistic and it's very sort of um, about human ingenuity. If we just spend time thinking about things we can solve our own problems and the resources are out there it's just a matter of focusing and prioritizing it seems like like bill gates or or the google guys could just get straight into this i just oh absolutely i think it'd be a great way for them to uh to to use their uh silly bully pulpit you know of of the technology uh, and 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 really make make a huge uh, contribution to the future of mankind. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that their that their epitaph written in history will be far more impactful. So, so anyway, I, I mean, I would I would love to see that. Um, I had, and of course, my kids are kind of of the same vein because they hang around me. But my my oldest son was in fourth grade, or I think fourth grade at one time, and. <laughs> And he was giving a little talk. They wanted all the kids to give a little talk in school. So they make a little poster and stand up in front of the, the parents and, and their other classmates and speak. And a lot of kids got up there and talked about, you know, we should 
be global, you know, environmental stewards and this and that. And and my my son had come up with some kind of hydrogen fusion uh, accelerated uh, rocket engine that was going to go into outer space and look for, you know, whatever. So he had talked about that, and then he was sitting down, and, and one little girl says, you know, we had, she had a picture of this verdant valley, this beautiful valley, and it's like, well, we need to take care of our of our environment, or else, we, you know, this valley will look like it's on Mars, and who wants to live on Mars? <laughs> and my, I saw my son turn to his buddy and say, I'd like to live on Mars. <laughs> the, kid, the other kid turns back and says, I'd like to live on Mars, too. Yeah, a lot of people would. <laughs> so there are some some people that subscribe to that and you know it's uh, give them an opportunity to do that i say you, you know you know it's funny i really expected this conversation to be more about doom and gloom and freaking right. people out instead it's more about like to just focus on technology focus on making things pushing things forward yeah i think yeah. if you, let's go back to the doom and gloom i think uh as a geologist you get over the doom and gloom thing pretty quick because you're not Two years into your undergraduate studies, when a uh, you know a, your professor can stand you on virtually any outcrop anywhere in the world and and show you conditions that would not have been conducive to the life of man on Earth, right. and so you know it's going to happen. So you just get over it, hmm, and, right. and 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 uh, all the hand wringing about about mankind leading to his own doom is is statistically unlikely. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. So, 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 you tend to get over that too. You you would like to see mankind move forward, and and you see evidence of that happening throughout throughout history. So, it's a it's a great it's a better philosophy. It's a philosophy where you're going to get out of bed and smile instead of get out of bed and frown. Yeah, because I know it's so easy to get preoccupied with some of this stuff. I mean, I know, uh, I, you know, there are there are there were days or even weeks at a time when I just got kind of obsessed with researching peak oil. I'm like, man, this is a you know nightmare. And, but then the only thing I would do at the end is be like, well, there's nothing I can do about it, really. And uh, so I'm just going to try not to think about it. But this is actually better. <laughs> you talk to an expert, and he's like, ah, I wouldn't worry about it because you know we've consistently. Fought, sort of fought our way out of, of uh, various constraint, constrained problems. Jason, I'm thinking that uh, talking about blogging as we have been, maybe we should do a, a blog post about um, helium three. Is it what was what's it called? Yeah, helium three, helium three fusion. And say, hey, Bill Gates, uh, Sergey, and open uh, letter, open letter to the titans yeah. of the technology industry. Yeah, helium yeah, exactly. The uh, sign from texting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of credibility behind that one. And Jay, aside from texting, and Jay, oh, that might help us a little bit. Better, better leave my better leave my name out of it. You don't know who whose skeletons I've rattled already. So, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, so, Jason, I think that uh, this is a, a very positive note to um, to to wrap up the show. Absolutely, and uh, Jay, we just really like to thank you for coming on. It's been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. Sure. Um, yeah. and very, very informative. I, I, uh, yeah, I found all of this stuff really interesting, and uh, definitely, um, I don't know, it kind of uh, gave me a little better perspective on some of the stuff that I'm reading that I've read because it's so easy to just get, I don't know, led down the wrong path by a few depressing. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think I think model modeling and people that are involved in modeling. Uh, uh, tend to share one thing in common that is that the models never really work out <laughs> right <laughs> but, 
it's it's a it's a great it's a great intellectual exercise and it's fun to do. I've done a lot of modeling in my in my day, but um, you, you, it's just difficult to to take into account the dynamics that are involved in the real world, and that's what's fascinating about the real world, actually. It's interesting yeah. because the show the show did start on a downer and it did I mean I was I was thinking at the beginning of the show well there's really no hope I mean we're just going to all die <laughs> 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 but as the show's gone on I've just been thinking actually you know there really is hope there's not not just hope for us not just hope that I'll survive a tsunami but hope for the in, the entirety of humanity I mean we will yeah. we will move on and we'll we'll go somewhere well I, I would just I mean I grew up in the in the space era and it was just such a fascinating era and right. so um, uh, so optimistic, and you were so driven. You want everybody wanted to be involved in the space program, and and I don't see that opportunity for young people these days. They they need to have something that that people can just dive into with both feet and really, uh, really, you know, that's bigger than them. Sort of, you know. So right. I, I'd like yeah, to inspire see them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, I guess that's a show then, right? Yep. So thanks again, Jay, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on again sometime, as long as we can find something uh, depressing to ask you. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Send it well, to me in advance so I can think about it. <laughs> right. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Okay. Bye. Thanks, thanks again, Jay. Really appreciate it. 